in the parables of Jesus. These are stories that Jesus told, uh, located in the Gospels in the New Testament. Stories that illustrate points that he's trying to make, that instruct, uh, that challenge. And uh, tonight we're going to look at uh, arguably one of the most famous of all of the parables, uh, the parable of the Good Samaritan. I suspect if I ask for a show of hands, everyone in the room probably has heard of that if you're not familiar with it. And it's it's become just part of, of global culture. Countless hospitals are named uh, Good Samaritan. Hospitals, uh, organizations like Samaritan's Purse, some of you have heard of. It's even been established into law. There are Good Samaritan laws that protect people who give aid to those in emergency situations. It, it's just come into our, our language. Uh, you, you know, you might say, oh, you know, my, uh, I had a crash on my scooter on the way to class, and a good Samaritan <laughs> came along and uh, carried me to class. <laughs> and, you know, it's so familiar in this way that uh, it, it might make us difficult for us to even think about this uh, parable in a fresh way. Um, it's, it's actually not named in your Bible, the parable of the Good Samaritan. That's kind of giving away the punchline uh, at, at the outset. But let's make the effort tonight um, to hear this with uh, uh, fresh ears and, uh, and eyes. So this is from Luke chapter 10. And uh, this is a parable that's in a, in a setting where uh, uh, someone approaches Jesus and uh, ask him uh, some questions. And so uh, we'll have the text uh, up on the screen and listen as I read. This is, this is the word of God from Luke chapter 10. And behold, a, a lawyer, uh, an expert in the, the Jewish law, stood up to put him, to put Jesus to the test, saying, Teacher, uh, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, well, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, Well, you've answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. But the man, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, Well, who is my neighbor? Jesus replied. And now he tells the story. A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. And then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii uh, and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these... Three, do you think, proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, the one who showed him mercy. Jesus. 
go and do likewise. This is God's word. So I want to take a few minutes and walk through the story and then share some personal reflections. So Jesus tells the story as, as we're reading it, as you saw, uh, in uh, answer to uh, the, the lawyer's question. And the lawyer uh, uh, asks the question, Jesus responds with the question, the lawyer gives uh, a good answer. He understands rightly that the two great commands are to love God with all one's heart, mind, soul, and strength, and to love our neighbor as ourself. And so Jesus responds, that's, that's a good answer. You have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. And that might have been the end of the conversation, but the, the, the expert in the law is not entirely satisfied with Jesus' answer. And, and so that's where the text says that desiring to justify himself, he asks another question. Who is my neighbor? See, he, he wanted to uh, vindicate himself. In other words, he wanted to feel comfortable with his own practice, his own conduct. And so he asked the follow-up question, apparently because what he's looking for is he wants to, to limit the scope of the answer, to limit the, the scope of the command, I should say, to love his neighbor, to limit it in such a way that he can say, see here, I, I obey this, I'm, I'm righteous according to the law. So he wants to understand this word, uh, love your neighbor as yourself, in a limited way that restricts its scope, and so that it, in effect, it only applies to the people that he is comfortable with. His question seems to be an attempt to create a category of people who he can say, well, that's not my neighbor. So I don't have to, to love that person. And it was common in that time for, for the Jews to, to equate the, the concept of neighbor with their kinsmen, with their brothers. And so this man may be thinking, he seems to be thinking, that if he can create a category of people who are not his neighbors, then he can be relieved of the responsibility and of the sense of obligation to those people. And it's in response to that who is my neighbor that Jesus tells this story? And he goes after this guy. So think about the story. First, let's think about the setup. He tells a story about a man traveling, it says, down uh, from Jerusalem to Jericho. And some of you will know from your reading or from hearing about this before that, that the, the, the road from Jerusalem to Jericho is 17 miles it is a treacherous, winding, steep, descending road. It was known to be dangerous. And so Jesus' listeners, they would have, yeah, they would have known right where, oh, I know that place. You know, they would have known what he's talking about. They would have been tracking with him when he tells the traveler, and this traveler is suddenly beset by robbers who attack him, strip him, beat him, leave him half dead, seriously wounded. So the scene is set. Now Jesus starts to describe a series of passers-by. And, you know, there's a note of hope. Now by chance, a priest, someone is coming. Surely hope is on the way, help is on the way. 
The first person to come on the scene is, is a priest, a seriously religious person. Surely he will stop to help the poor man. But no, he doesn't. When he sees the man in distress, he makes a choice, and he passes by on the other side. Next, a Levite, another important religious person in, in, the, in the Jewish community. And he responds in exactly the same way. He sees the man, wounded, lying by the side of the road. But rather than take any action to help him, he also makes a choice. And he passes him by. And, you know, many people, uh, and, and I, I think it's natural to ask the question, why didn't these people stop? It's interesting, right? Jesus doesn't say. And perhaps he doesn't say because he knows how many reasons might be given to justify not getting involved with this man by the side of the road. I've already mentioned it. It's, it's a dangerous road. There might still be robbers here. If I stop to help this person, I might myself become a victim. I don't want to take that risk. Maybe it's inconvenient. I'm, I've, I've got to get somewhere by dinner. I've got, to get to, I've got to get to my class. I've got to get this piece set in by five. There are places I need to be. I don't have time to stop and take care of this. Maybe it's distasteful. There was a greater concern than we're familiar with, with things like ritual purity in that time. But even just the fact that this person is bloody and dirty, it's messy. It's complicated. I'm not a doctor. I don't even know first aid. I don't know what to do. It's costly. Not only in terms of time and, and the inconvenience, but in terms of the care that this person needs. You couldn't just call 911 and the ambulance will pull up. Hey, thanks. We'll take care of it. <laughs> so there's cost involved. Perhaps Jesus doesn't give a reason because the reason doesn't matter. What, what matters is that they saw a fellow human being in need and they chose to do nothing. So that's, that's the setup for the story. But then the story gets really interesting. Everybody listening to this point is no doubt, they are, they are tracking with Jesus. They're, they're intensely, wow, okay. And then it gets really interesting because in Jesus' time, the people listening would have expected the third person. That's, that's the, the, the rhythm of these, these stories. And they would have expected that third person would be an ordinary Jew. They're ordinary people. You know, the priests, the Levites, okay. You know, we're just ordinary people. They would have expected, okay, the, the next person is going to be somebody ordinary like me. I mean, it's, it's, it's almost like the joke, you know, three men enter a bar. Uh, there's a pattern to these things. And of course, right, oh, I get it. The two religious dudes, yes, they are the hypocrites. It's the ordinary person who's the hero. And so they're, they're tracking with this. And wouldn't that have made a really good point about loving your neighbor? If, if the third person had just been an ordinary uh, fellow Jew? That would have been a great point, Jesus. Of course, don't be so pious. 
that you don't take time to make the effort to care for those in need, something like that. Don't be a hypocrite who, who you know, professes to, uh, you know, to love God and neighbor and ignore somebody in need. That's a, that's a, that's a good point. That is one of Jesus' points. He does want us to get that. But listen, if Jesus had told the story that way, it might also have merely reinforced the lawyer's way of thinking. That's right, teacher. That's right, rabbi. That's just what I thought. We should come to the aid of our own. Jesus just turns the tables on that narrative dramatically because the third person to come along is not a Jew at all. You know this. It's the Samaritan. Uh-oh. Because there, there is a history, there is a bad history between the Jews and the Samaritans. They were divided by their religion. They were divided by race. They did not like one another. They were hostile. They would generally have despised shunned one another. They had John chapter 4, John describing Jesus encountering a Samaritan woman. The Jews had no dealings with the Samaritans. And suddenly, in this story, the, the hero, if you will, is not who the lawyer or anyone listening would have expected. And of course, the Samaritan does what? He, unlike the priest and the Levite, he sees the, the needy person, he is moved by compassion and he takes action. And so then as Jesus finishes the story, he asks the lawyer a question. And it's not the lawyer's original question. What did the lawyer ask Jesus? He says, who is my neighbor? But what does Jesus say? He reverses the question. He turns it around and he says, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? And you can imagine, have you, have you been in a room where, where all of a sudden it gets really uncomfortably quiet? I, I think this would have been one of those moments where everybody listening is like, uh-oh, awkward. <laughs> and finally the lawyer answers, he says, the one who showed him mercy. And many have suggested that the lawyer didn't even want to say the Samaritan. The one who showed him mercy. Jesus is pushing on this man. And he's, he's pushing on him hard because Jesus knows how we think. He has deliberately made the hero of the story that works, to be someone that the lawyer did not want as his neighbor. And a number of readers of this account have observed how Jesus is compelling the lawyer to give an answer that he doesn't want to give. He's forced to commend as a hero someone who was a member of a despised race.
who he might even have considered a hated enemy. And Jesus is saying to us, go and do likewise. I want to reflect with you guys for a few minutes on this story. Because there's, there's a lot of directions we, we can go in thinking about the implications of what Jesus is saying to all of us. And, and tonight I want to share with you some of the ways that, that I'm thinking about this story and some of the ways I'm wrestling with this story. You know, I've preached on this parable before. And uh, I was able to go back and find uh, old sermon notes from a sermon I gave years ago on this parable. And as I reread it, I think I said some really good things. <laughs> And one of the things I did in that sermon is, and I would do this to all of us again tonight, is I challenged people to follow in the footsteps of many faithful Christians throughout the centuries. Christians who, moved by compassion, moved by the love of Christ, have been willing to cross the road and come to the aid of the suffering and the needy in myriad of ways. And one of the reasons that the gospel has gone forth powerfully into the world is because Christians have been willing to do that. And in that sermon, I asked this question of the group. I said, who is lying in the road in front of us right now? And here's how I answered that question many years ago. Quote, there are so many faces of poverty and human misery the homeless, rural poor, urban poor, working poor, children of poverty, ethnic poor, prisoners, immigrants, refugees, elderly, sick, mentally ill. And then I said, the Church of Jesus Christ, you and me, must squarely face our responsibility to show mercy to those who are lying on the road in front of us. Jesus commanded it. Now that's a good list. That's a good answer. But today, tonight, I'm convinced that that's not an adequate answer. And in some ways, as I, as, now I'm speaking to you really personally, as I go back and read that answer, I'm embarrassed by that. I think I, there's a lot of good things on that list, but that is an inadequate answer in terms of where, how God is working in my life because it neglects even to mention one of the deepest issues of suffering and of injustice in my world and in my own lifetime, and, and what I'm talking about is racial injustice and hatred. Let me tell you a little bit about my own story. My, I grew up in Dallas, Texas, born in the 1950s, and my earliest awareness of race was connected to fear. I can remember as a child growing up in Dallas in the 1960s how occasionally we would have to drive through the bad part of town, which meant neighborhoods where black people Hispanic people. And my mother would tell us, okay, kids, can you roll up the windows? 
you to lock the doors and don't make eye contact with anyone. And we, my brother and sister and I, would stare wide-eyed and afraid out the windows of the car at these frightening, strange people from another world that we needed to be afraid of and that we needed to avoid. I grew up in a profoundly segregated and when I became a Christian in high school, by God's grace, God began to work graciously in my heart and uh, to change my heart and to change my attitudes. And I think that for many years, I would say I was, I was the sort of, of white evangelical who condemned racism as evil, who longed for a day when, when people from every nation and tribe and language and tongue would be worshiping together, singing praise to the Lord Jesus. I wasn't a racist anymore in my own eyes. And at times, I, I, I would struggle more recently when people talked about things like white privilege. In other words, what I'm trying to say is I wasn't actively racist. I was deeply saddened and dismayed when people, especially those who identified as followers of Jesus, were overtly racist. But, but here's the thing. When it, when it came to race, in most respects, I was still the person passing by on the other side of the road. Still afraid still didn't want to get involved, still didn't know how to get involved. And I just want to say to you guys tonight that I, I feel like I'm, I'm, on, I'm on a journey now. The person who's helped me in this more than anyone else is Debbie, my wife. And, and I'm, I'm, I'm listening in a way I haven't listened all my life. I'm, I'm, I'm reading, and the more I listen and the more I learn, you know, the first impact it's having on me is, is, is that my heart is, is just broken. And, and some days, to be honest with you, I don't know how to get past that. Some days I am so overcome with grief and, and um, sadness and guilt as I think about the history of race in this country and how people who are made in the image of God and have treated their, their fellow human beings. And it, it, it breaks my heart. And I, I'm, I'm reading a book right now called, called Woke Church. And um, I am not ready, I would not presume, I'll put it that way, to say that I am woke just yet. <laughs> I'm an old white guy. <laughs> but, but what I want to, I'm just saying, maybe I'm getting close to that point you know, toward toward the morning. You know that that moment toward the morning, maybe when you're you're still asleep. <laughs> and I don't know. You guys don't have kids yet, but you know, one of your kids comes in and is poking you and saying, "Dad, Dad, wake up." And, and I'm just saying that I feel like God is poking me these days. He's saying, "Bill, wake up. Look, look around." I want to be, become more of a person, that was me, sorry. I want to become more of a person who is conscious, a person who sees, a person who is moved by compassion to do something 
to show mercy, even if it is costly. And I guess my question for you guys tonight is, what about you? Can, can we grow together as a community? I mean, one of our hopes, one of our prayers for PCF, both staff and students, is that we will become people who, who, who cry out in repentance, who cry out for faith or courage, for love, for compassion, and, and who grow together in, in learning what does it mean, what does it look like, what does it require of us to, to cross the road to help one another, not just to, to motivate one another, but to really begin to, to be different. So I want to just close with, with this thought, and, and that is what ultimately this parable is calling us to, is to become a people who are committed to compassion, to love, to showing mercy. And, you know, a merciful spirit, how, how does my spirit become a merciful spirit? I think it ultimately comes when I understand my own spiritual poverty, when, when I come to a place of grief over, over sin, when I come to a place of a deep realization and hunger for, for righteousness, that I do not find in myself. In other words, a merciful spirit comes from a heart that understands my own poverty, my own need for mercy, and then is comforted by the reality that God has been merciful to me. In other words, I begin to grow in mercy when I come to see that I'm broken, that I am the one left for dead on the side of the road, and that Jesus has crossed the road for me at great cost. He became a human being. He took upon himself our flesh and blood. He was betrayed. He was whipped. He was beaten. He was falsely accused. He was hated without cause. He was finally put to an ignominious death to take care of my deepest need, which was for forgiveness for mercy, and when I really begin to see how Jesus has loved me, how he loves me, what he has done for me, that I owe everything to him in his mercy, then, you know what that does? I find mercy is, is welling up in me in a fresh way. And I pray that for all of us. Because that spirit of compassion, that spirit of mercy, then begins to drive out the fear begins to drive out the selfishness, and it begins to move us and motivate us into the lives of others. You know, Martin Luther King Jr. loved the parable of the Good Samaritan, and he used it to motivate people. The night before he was assassinated, he gave a, a, a talk, and he was urging friends who were involved in the civil rights movement not to give away to fear, not to walk by on the other side. You guys have heard this speech. Uh, I've been to the mountaintop. And in that speech he imagined that perhaps what motivated that priest and what, and what that Levite to just keep walking, not to get involved, was their fear. Because the Jericho Road was a dangerous road. And he said, quote, 
And so the first question that the priest asked, the first question that the Levite asked, was if I stop to help this man, what will happen to me? But then the good Samaritan came by and he reversed the question. If I do not stop to help this man, what will happen to him? Brothers and sisters, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? The one who showed him Jesus is saying tonight to you and to me, you go. 